Let's have our Bibles open again to John 12, shall we? What an incredible chapter this is. I would love a month to camp in this. It's, uh, as I've been looking through it this week, I, I wondered, you know, we're, we're, we're just a little bit beyond the midway point in John's gospel, even at chapter 12. But I wonder if John 12 presents for us the, the clearest view of what Christ does on the cross for us before we actually get to John chapter 19. It's incredible. Let's have it open and let's pray uh, and ask for God's help in coming to what we read together and think through together in these moments. Lord, indeed, we do pray, asking the same request that those Greeks in our passage ask, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Lord, let us see Jesus tonight. We are believers, let it be fueled to the fire of our worship and our praise and of our Christian walk with you. And if we're not yet believers, let tonight be a night where we move from darkness to light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 12, we're going to continue reading from verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Well, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light for just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus glory and spoke about him yet at the same time many even among the leaders believed in him but because of the Pharisees they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved praise from men more than praise from God then Jesus cried out when a man believes in me he does not believe in me only but in the one who sent me when he looks at me he sees the one who sent me I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save it there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words that very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day but I did not speak of my own accord but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it I know that his command leads to eternal life so whatever I say is just what the father has told me to say Amen this is God's word wonder if you've ever had one of those moments in a room where you are just sitting there all of a sudden you become aware of this tick tick tock tick tock you hear a clock ticking away and you hadn't noticed it before but all of a sudden you become very aware of it you've had that experience surely it's not that the clock hasn't been ticking and it's only just started ticking it's just that only now you have just come to notice it and recognize it I start with that because I think that describes for us a little bit about what's been going on in John's gospel in these first 12 chapters already. There's been a clock ticking, hasn't there? It's been in the background, and on occasions you've heard it's tick-tock, tick-tock, but only when Jesus has said something like, my time has not yet come, or the hour is not yet come. Well, interestingly, we come to John chapter 12, and this midway point, even in in verse 20, an occasion when some Greeks came to worship at the feast, coming asking to see Jesus, all of a sudden this tick-tock, tick-tock that you've, you've missed, you've, it's maybe gone unnoticed, now all of a sudden you hear it again. And it's almost a case where it's been not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, and with the nations in a sense coming to Jesus, boom, now is the time. The hour, the hour is a very significant hour in John's gospel. Although it's a theme that just kind of weaves itself through almost subtly, coming to the fore on occasions where we get to see it, it is very, very important. There is a lot that can be read into this hour. There's certainly a lot the Bible tells us about this hour. It is an hour of redemption, an hour of rescue, an hour of salvation but it's a solemn thing. Which is interesting, actually, considering we've just been in John chapter 11. What's happened there? 
Jesus has just been raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus, that's later. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Incredibly so. And people are celebrating this. What a what a what a, a, a climactic peak to the miracles of Jesus that we've seen in these first twelve chapters. And yet, amazingly, when we come into John chapter 12, what do you see? Well, you see a feast going on. There's a meal at Lazarus' house, nonetheless. And Lazarus, once dead, now alive, sits at a table with Jesus, now alive and soon to be dead. And there's no sign of any real jubilation, which is odd. Especially for Martha and Mary. I mean, if their, their brother had been dead for four days... Now what? Oh, Mary comes in and anoints Jesus' feet. And Jesus gives some explanation to that whole act. It's an act of costly devotion. But Jesus links it with his burial. What, you mean this is about death? Are you kidding me? When we've just seen this man raised to life? Oh, yes. Because this is what the hour is all about. This is the hour of redemption and the hour has come as we read in verse 23 for the son of man to be glorified in what sense in the sense that the people are praising Jesus as he almost triumphantly enters into Jerusalem Hosanna give salvation now they are crying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord oh we're going to see some ousting of the Romans. We're going to see an end to this oppression of this invading army. No. No, if they understood the prophecy in Zechariah that they were so gladly and cheerfully singing, they would understand that their king was not coming to oust an occupying army, but sin itself. When they will look upon the one who was pierced. It's about death. It's about burial. It's almost anticlimax, yet it is so, so important. Sure, he is a reigning king, but he has a bigger enemy to deal with, doesn't he? What is Rome compared to the sin of the world? Nothing. Chapter 12 is Jesus' final appeal to the crowds before he goes into an upper room to wash his disciples' feet, to start giving them some final instructions, a little bit of explanation to know what's going to happen in the coming days and what they should expect. And he's about to share in some significant times with them. But really, this is his final appeal, publicly speaking, before he gets to the cross. And I want us to see just two things quickly tonight, okay? Number one, salvation, rescue, redemption from sin is one through the death of Jesus and secondly salvation is owned possessed by those who die to themselves so number one salvation one through the death of Jesus we're, we're, we're really needing to ask a question that helps us narrow this all down because there is so much in here and one of the questions could be well what exactly does this hour this death of Jesus actually achieve and I think we get a hint at that from verse 30 through to 33, where Jesus is saying that this hour of glorification is going to win this, 
now is the time for, first of all, he says, judgment on this world. That Jesus' death achieves judgment on the world. At the cross, God is telling us what he feels about sin, and he is showing us that he has dealt decisively with sin. Because you see, Jesus' death on the cross exposes the sin of humankind, of man's rejection of God in preference for the cheap trinkets of this world, even themselves. Because we've heard all the way through John's gospel that the coming of Jesus was God's good news to a world absolutely decaying and dying at the feet of sin. Mankind is almost like a zombie. Sure, they're walking around, they're moving, but really, they're dead. But the extent of the world's sin really, and their deadness, <laughs> is exposed in its most dreadful form when the world and its rebellion having just sung his praises, oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will shout, crucify. Expose the extent of man's dreadful rebellion by hanging the Son of God up to die on a cross. And the irony is that they thought that they were judging him. <laughs> well, all the while, through his death on the cross, Jesus is judging them. Judging the world in relation to sin and I wonder how you feel about that God judging the world through the cross God being a judge us being accountable to him well yes many are surprised at these kind of things I think the common view of God is that he's much like some kind of unscrupulous janitor instead of really dealing with the world's dirt it's sin it's evil it's wickedness he just sweeps it under the carpet he ignores it uh, and in fact, many people can't really conceive of a God who, who would do anything else. God judge sin, they say. Punish me for wickedness. Of course he wouldn't do that. God is a loving God after all. Well, he is, but that's, that's not a good argument. It's God's rule over the universe, his sovereign lordship over all that he has created, including us, is founded actually upon his remaining forever, perfectly righteous and just as Habakkuk in the Old Testament tells us your eyes are too pure to look on evil you cannot tolerate wrong this is the kind of God we're dealing with here the kind of God that is revealed perfectly through his son the Lord Jesus Christ so you understand that if God is holy and cannot look upon evil to, to, to do what the unscrupulous janitor did would be to renounce his very self and God can't do that it would make God out to be unjust and unrighteous. It makes him a God who simply hides sin, but he will not do that. Because it would basically make him a moral coward. But scripture tells us that, that because God is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, he deals decisively with all evil. And that's a relief for us as well. So I think the encouragement for us is in this, in recognizing that Jesus' death on the cross, the hour achieves judgment on this world as a call for us really not to minimize our sin, take it lightly. Because it's a lot more than just a, a violation of some impersonal, kind of heavenly, I don't know, like you get a parking ticket or something like that. It's not like a spiritual parking ticket. It's truly the breaking of a relationship. It's rebellion against God and his love. It's a rejection of him, his rule, his care, his authority. 
In short, it's rebellion of the creature against creator. So we mustn't take it lightly because at the cross, at this hour, God deals decisively with our sin. But he also, as we see verse 31 continuing, the way in which he'll be glorified through this cross, through this hour, not only in judgment of the world, but in the driving out of the prince of this world. He's talking about Satan at the cross. God deals decisively with the devil. He exists, you know. He lives to oppose God. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. He can provoke evil deeds. And he has power. And he is God's enemy and endeavors at all times to destroy or undo the work of God, even deceiving people in various ways. I mean, his weaponry, of course, is wide-ranging. But his trademark tools really are temptation and lies. Indeed, as Matthew 4 and 13 tells us, he's, the devil is named as the tempter. And John 8, 44, as we've already seen in our series, he is the father of lies. But at the cross, <laughs> this deceiver, this tempter, this, this evil one is dealt with decisively. Which is interesting again, because there's irony in this. The hour of Jesus' death would to any spectator show show up as being the most overwhelming knockout blow really that the devil could possibly have dealt on Jesus but the truth of the matter it is Satan's most comprehensive defeat Colossians tells us that Satan was not only disarmed at this hour by Jesus dying on the cross for sins it tells us that Jesus made a public spectacle of the the weakness of the prince of this world by triumphing over him and the powers of darkness there's a battle analogy a fight analogy going on here isn't there reminded me of David Hay and Vladimir Klitschko I think was his name wasn't it did you hear David Hay oh oh I'm the best he even invented an iPhone app so that you could join him in knocking the head off of Vladimir Klitschko as a boxer. Who won the fight? Klitschko. And I'm actually quite glad. And I think that's something of an illustration for us. You know, the devil can shout and scream and say all these elaborate claims as to his greatness. And we can see lots of things going on that that actually might think as, you know, as he flexes his muscles. Well, he looks like quite a powerful one but the truth of the matter is he is dealt a decisive blow by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and he as the prince of this world is driven out and this is why this is important for us so much is he the, the ruler of people's minds that Jesus actually calls him the prince of this world and we know what that's like don't we we know what it's like to feel trampled by guilt to be tempted by things that we don't want or indeed tempted by things that we do want. To be run down by shame, sometimes to be shackled to addiction, to see the ruining effects of sin just tear lives apart. These are all armaments of this prince of this world, but the holiness and the sinlessness of of Jesus is the very thing that would crush the devil, meaning that the cross is his defeat, the devil's defeat. Because Jesus truly is our champion and he is for everyone who believes in him but look on with me as well not only is he 
uh, where he says in verse 31, now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. We already heard in our reading that there was the promise of a worldwide harvest that was coming. The salvation that was coming from the Jews, of course, because God had in in the past chosen Israel to be the people on which he set his affection, the people through which he would display his glory to the nations. But in chapter 4 of John's gospel, we've seen that the Samaritans, yes, as outsiders, had confessed Jesus as what? You are the saviour of the world, they said. And even in John chapter 10, from Jesus' own mouth, he had said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is the fold of Israel. I must bring them also. Jesus' death draws in, you understand, the nations of the world and extends salvation beyond the Jews to every nation, language, people group. And remember, of course, what triggers these incredible words of Jesus regarding this hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's the coming of the Greeks. When Jesus sees these outsiders seeking him, we want to see Jesus against the backdrop of the insiders seeking to kill him as the Pharisees are doing. Now is the time. Glorify your name. I would add in a wee qualifier here. I think this verse that Jesus draws all men to himself can be misunderstood. It's not that Jesus would draw all men without exception. That would be universalism. You cannot equate that view with anything else that you've read or heard in John's gospel at all. Rather, it means all men without distinction. It means all the people groups in the world. Jesus' salvation is truly, gloriously offered to the nations. But look back with me. Those are just three things that the death of Jesus achieves for us. Okay, But look back with me. As Jesus says in verse 23 and into 24, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what does all of this hang on? Remember, let's, let's, let's see the emphasis that comes on the hour. See it for yourself. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In Greek, it's much fruit. It's not that it produces many seeds but it's going to produce crop. It's going to produce harvest. But what are we supposed to see in this? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, unless Jesus dies, none of this is possible. None of those decisive victories, only three of them we've considered, there are more. They're not possible were it not for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross we would be hopelessly lost flailing about in an ocean of sin with absolutely no hope on the horizon for a rescue boat to redeem us and pluck us out from our certain death and Jesus is talking about this so in such a way as if to say look if I didn't if I don't go to the cross if I don't die I would be the only one one seed one seed that knew what? 
Well, what has Jesus been saying all along in John's gospel? What are one of, the, one of the main things that he has emphasized and brought to the fore each time? I and the Father are one. There is nothing that divides us. Was his point? He was in such close unity with the Father, of course, by virtue of his relationship as the eternal Son of God. But certainly as a man, he was showing us that unless he went to the cross, we could not be reconciled to God. We would have no possibility of it. But die, he did. But it's no easy task. Look at verse 27. Now my heart is troubled. Troubled? Revulsion, really. (laughs) Agitation. At the prospect of this hour. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? Well, John doesn't record Jesus praying in Gethsemane, but this is certainly close to that, doesn't it? It echoes that occasion that the other Gospels account for. It's incredible just to to think on that. What What is it that you think Jesus, in the fullness of his humanity, feels the need to be saved from? Or feels at least the possibility of the need to pray, Father, save me from this hour. Well, many have said in the past, oh, it's the pain of crucifixion. The prospect of death. Others say, well, I think it's more the emotional, the anguish of betrayal and denial and desertion by by his friends. I wonder what you think of those possibilities. They, They sound reasonable, in a sense. Fear of death is normally a person's number one. Uh on their list of greatest fears and and really who of us who among us would ever want any of our friends to turn their backs on us even deny that they ever knew us but i i would agree with john stott who says nothing could ever make me believe that jesus dreaded any of these things why well there were other people who faced death more nobly if it was the case that jesus was shrinking back for that reason even many christians you could say then If that was true, then many others have died a better death than Jesus. But I think all the evidence of Jesus teaching his character, his behavior, just scream in opposition to these suggestions. I think what we're supposed to see in this is that the thing that stretches him is surely the prospect of taking the weight and the the, 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 the weight of the sin of the world upon himself and enduring the divine judgment, the wrath of the Father that we deserve for those sins. That's what, he's, that's what is on his heart. That's what causes Jesus Christ in the fullness of his humanity, in a sense, to shrink momentarily from this, as he does in Gethsemane. Where he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup, he talks about this cup, this cup of God's wrath in Isaiah, a cup of staggering is described as. If it is possible, take this from me, yet not what I will, but you will be done. It's exactly what we see. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His prayer, though expressing the fullness of his humanity, his submission to the Father expresses the fullness of his deity. Perfect obedience, the triumph of perfect obedience of the Son of God is what wins for us salvation and rescue. Isn't that precious? You could not have done this. You could not have. 
and with an unfathomable love in his heart for sinners like us as Spurgeon says Jesus seized the cup of God's wrath and at one tremendous draft of love he drank damnation dry praise God for that this is what makes you see this hour so important it is the landmark of life because it is the landmark that shows us the glory of God wonderfully, so perfectly. A landmark, of course, is, is quite simply something that enables someone to look upon something and establish themselves in terms of knowing exactly where they are. If you want to orientate yourself to what life is all about, look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and get it. Because this is where all of life is described. And certainly where all the warnings come to. It's in the cross of Christ, as Calvinist says, that a splendid theater it is. The incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. Now we see the threads of the hour come together. For what purpose? Glorify the Son of Man and glorify the Father. God is glorified perfectly, wonderfully through the cross. Salvation is won for us through the cross. Let me pull this in. Secondly, salvation is owned by those who die to themselves. Look with me. And what verse 25 says. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus is telling us right here how you can know eternal life in his name. You know how to lose your life. It's quite simple, as he explains here. In verse 25, love your life in this world with yourself at the center of it more than you love Jesus. And you will lose it. As he said, the destination here is eternal life. And basically, he's telling us, look, you can miss it by loving your life. That is making it your goal in life to be safe and secure, comfy and surrounded by pleasant things. Ignoring Jesus, ignoring the hour of his death, not looking at this, this landmark of life which displays God's glory. That's the pathway to death and judgment. We can find this a hard thing because we're basically called to die then to ourselves we're supposed to lose our lives for his sake and it's often hard to do that it's hard to hate your life in this world it's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross it's hard to take even the role of a servant in a world that is that is so fascinated by by number one by by power and by working to have others serve you but it's possible through the cross to put all of that off and to come to him. Because he doesn't just tell you how to lose your life, he tells you how to find eternal life. That the glory of God is attained through Jesus is not only true for him, 
through his death, through his emptying of himself, but also for those who would follow him. The man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hating your life in this world means dying to yourself. Does not include any form of self-harm whatsoever. But it involves selflessness. Putting off the self. Dying to self. Dying to all the enticements and attractions that this world offers. Christ has set us that example. And just as Christ shows us that his compares his death to the sowing of a kernel of wheat which appears to be the destruction of the wheat but yet is a cause of far more abundant increase in the same way for those who would follow because Jesus applies the same illustration basically to us dying to self may feel like the end of living the end of freedom you might say and yet for us it's the cause of increase you see what Jesus does here he says that refusing to deny yourself in life means you value other things more than him but as he says elsewhere whoever wants to save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for me will save it what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit or lose his very self He's basically using financial language to say if you used all your resources and centered them on you, if you had all the people of the world, if you had their approval, resources, money, everything, it's loss. Even if you gain the world at the cost of your very self, it's a bad investment, Jesus says. It's loss because you will forfeit your soul. So the question then tonight is, well, well what in us needs to die? in order to follow Christ and receive eternal life. What in you needs to die tonight? The answer? Everything. What in him will you gain tonight? Everything. Eternal life with him forever. Look at verse 25b. Sorry, 26. Whoever serves me must follow me must follow me and where I am my servant also will be eternal life in the very presence of our Lord and Savior himself now listen to this this is Jesus appeal okay Jesus appeal is found in verse 35 and following even as the crowd wonder what's going on what does Jesus mean by all of this he just says you're going to have the light that's himself he's made that clear already in John's gospel you're going to have the light just a little while longer Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. There's the warning again. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. There's the answer. Put your trust in the light. What does it mean to put your trust in him? What does it mean to put your faith in him? Well, it basically means putting yourself, relying on what Jesus Christ has done for you, for your righteous standing before God. We're relying on Him. 
to secure for us a righteous verdict from God the judge rather than a guilty one on that day when we will see him face to face put your trust in what he wins for us in terms of the salvation that's won for us through his death on the cross because Jesus makes it possible for us to be counted righteous by Jesus himself dying in our place we bank everything on him and he is received truly by the father and the command as really the rest of the chapter goes to show is a heavenly one Jesus makes this very clear for us he has often spoken about the one who has sent him the one who sent me said this the one who had sent me commanded me to say this he basically Jesus basically says in the end when you've heard my words you've heard the word of God when you have seen me do things when you've seen me work in this world you've seen God at work because Jesus is the son of man the eternal son of God whose death brings us life if we just put our trust in him and the clock is ticking still as we await his return and by then it will be too late walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you my call for anyone here tonight who is not a believer is this put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light may you put your faith and trust in him tonight and may we who believe who have owned and possessed by his grace a glorious salvation that is won for us through the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, may we fill our mouths again with this gospel, to sing it, and to go out and tell people about it. Because the clock is ticking.